Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Five, four, three, two, one. And lift off the rise of Starliner and a new era in human spaceflight. With the CST-100 Starliner capsule poised to launch to the International Space Station, Boeing is playing catch-up in the commercial space race. Starliner, designed to carry people and cargo to low Earth orbit, was developed under NASA's commercial crew program, alongside SpaceX, which has been ferrying astronauts in its spacecraft since 2020. For Boeing, the stakes couldn't be higher after a failed test mission in December of 2019 and engine valve issues last summer. Boeing will redo its test flight, and if that goes well, astronauts will be on board before the year is out. But it speaks to a bigger paradigm shift at NASA. As public-private partnerships have helped spur innovation and drive down costs, a business model being adopted across other programs, both within the agency and increasingly elsewhere in government. That's what separates the United States of America from every other country on the planet. We are really, really good at entrepreneurship, and we've got some really smart people that are figuring all of this stuff out, and the U.S. government needs to benefit from it. During his 30-month tenure as NASA Administrator, Jim Bridenstine doubled down on this concept, opening low Earth orbit to more commercialization and laying the bipartisan groundwork to help stoke more excitement and more funding to enable some big moonshots, including, quite literally, the Artemis program to return Americans to the moon. On this episode, we talk American policy, commercial space, and even 3D printing of human organs and microgravity. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great privilege for me to introduce to you the new administrator of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Jim Bridenstine. Jim Bridenstine was seen as an unlikely choice when President Trump nominated the Oklahoma congressman to serve as the 13th NASA administrator. After a tumultuous process, he was narrowly confirmed by the Senate after six months, taking the helm at the Civil Space Agency in spring of 2018. By the time Bridenstine resigned in January 2021 to make way for someone with a, quote, close relationship with newly elected President Biden, his tenure was widely regarded across the industry as a very successful one. Uh, the history of NASA is starts and stops and starts and stops. We go back to the Apollo program. It got canceled by the Nixon administration. We were without a human spaceflight program until the space shuttles. We had a an eight-year gap. The space shuttle retired. We were without a human spaceflight program for nine years until we got commercial crew going. We, we think back in these, in these periods of time, the, the, the space exploration initiative of the 1990s, billions of dollars spent, programs canceled. We think about the vision for space exploration in the early 2000s, billions of dollars spent, the Constellation program established, canceled lots of wasted money. What I love about what, what we did at NASA and what's happening now at NASA is everybody has recognized that if these programs are going to be successful, they have to be durable. 
we, we're talking about not just multi-decadal, but multi-generational programs. They cannot be cast to and fro by the whims of every new administration. And so what we worked on really hard at NASA was building this bipartisan, apolitical consensus. The goal has to be to keep these programs bipartisan, apolitical, um, if they're going to be successful. And, 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 and Administrator Bill Nelson, former Senator Bill Nelson, who is at the helm now, um, he has taken those programs, he's moved them forward, and he has committed himself, just like we committed ourselves, um, to, to this kind of multi-decadal, multi-generational effort that's going to be necessary for us to stay ahead of China. I mean, that's ultimately what it's going to take. Mm. I mean, you're in, in, in a unique vantage point in terms of that, because former congressman, you know what it is to legislate. And then, of course, now former administrator of NASA, you know what it is to sort of have these programs that have long lead times and are so dependent on an annual basis on federal budgets. Is it one of those things where you just have to keep plugging along to continue to make sure that that bipartisan consensus uh, remains intact, especially through election cycles? Yeah, absolutely. So we have to think about what the NASA administrator does day in and day out. The NASA administrator is working with the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, to get a budget for NASA that matches what the president has put out in speeches and rhetoric and policy. So, so working with OMB, you've got to get the budget. But in order to make that happen, you also have to work with the National Security Council, the National Space Council, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the vice president's staff is going to have opinions, the president's staff is going to have opinions. You've got to, you've got to work within your own administration to get um, the budget necessary to achieve the, the goals of the administration. Once that is complete, and even before it's complete, then you've got to spend your time on the Hill making sure that you're getting apolitical bipartisan support for that budget so that you can actually achieve those objectives over time. And while all of that is going on, because of the international nature and the partnerships of what NASA does day in and day out, you've got to be traveling the world, meeting not only with the heads of space agencies from around the world, but also you're meeting with the, the finance ministers of whatever legislative body happens to exist in the countries that you're partnering with. So, um, it, it is a very political process. It's a very bureaucratic, challenging process. Um, but it, it is, it is, uh, it, it's necessary, but it's not partisan. It's not, it's not partisan. It's not, um, it's not Republicans against Democrats. A lot of it is parochial. It's people that mm -hmm. have interests in their districts or interests in their states, weaving all that together to get the political consensus in an a, in a, it's funny to get the political consensus in an apolitical way, I should say in a bipartisan way, and then getting all of the international partners, you know, one of our messages was our budget is going up because we're going to the moon and on to Mars. We expect our partners to be as committed as we are. We expect them to have their budgets go up at the same time. And we were able to achieve that with the European space agency, with the Japanese space agency, with the Canadian space agency, um, we were able to put together, I think, a, a robust coalition for a sustainable program. And that's what's been lacking. What's been lacking historically is the bipartisan consensus and the international partnerships. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and it's 
we got that put together. And of course, uh, Administrator Nelson is moving forward um, with alacrity as we speak. So um, I think we're in a good position now to have a program that is in fact sustainable. Yeah, so from a civil space perspective, I mean, just in light of this conversation, it's sort of transcending partisan politics. We've obviously got Russia invading Ukraine and all the tensions and the conflict playing out there on the ground. Is civil space something that can continue to transcend earthly wars as well? Yeah. So I, first of all, I think the answer is yes. I mean, remember, in the height of the Cold War, we had the, 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 what was called the Apollo-Soyuz program, where we had the Apollo module and a Soyuz module you know, joined in space together, 1973. Um, that 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 was in the height of the Cold War. Um, and then, of course, going forward, we had the International Space Station. Half of the International Space Station is Russian. Um, and now we've had Russian cosmonauts and American astronauts living and working together in space for 20 years, which is astonishing. Now, I will tell you, um, Going forward, given the challenges here on Earth, uh, it's going to be very difficult for those partnerships to, to grow in different directions. Mm. I will tell you that it is important in my view, we are only at the tip of the iceberg of understanding the value of microgravity. And we're learning that from the International Space Station. We need to be committed to making sure that the International Space Station sustains uh, just because we've put $100 billion into the project at this point, and we're right now understanding the tremendous value from microgravity. We're talking about the compounding of pharmaceuticals, uh, the advancements of immunizations, the ability to print human tissue in 3D, eventually human organs in 3D, be transformational for human life here on Earth, advanced materials like an artificial retina for the human eyeball, these are all so people who have macular degeneration don't have to lose their eyesight. These are transformational things happening on the International Space Station right now for which there are broad commercial markets. And we have to make sure that we're continuing that mission as we are accelerating what comes next. And what comes next are commercial space stations that will replace the International Space Station. But in order to make those successful, we have to continue the work on the International Space Station. What does that mean? That means it's important um, that we continue the mission. Um, and, and, and it might mean that we have to, we have to do a heavier lift. Um, and if that's necessary, we need to do it because we've already put so much money there. You'd hate to see, mm. you'd hate to see that um, the ISS would be, would be terminated right, right when it's delivering uh, the most impactful science for the broadest commercial markets possible. I mean, what what is it about microgravity that makes that 3D. so different or so exciting or so um, transformational versus what you could do on Earth? Yeah, so it's 3D. So um, if you were to try to grow, so the idea, Morgan, is imagine us taking your adult skin cells, your your adult stem cells from your skin and using those cells to create tissue that matches you perfectly. So you're getting your own tissue. Mm. Um, we have done that with cardio tissue, heart tissue, vascular tissue, like your veins. We've done it even, I think, at this point with some nerve tissue. Um, and that's that's impressive. But 
if we really want to have a huge impact, we have to be able to grow tissue in 3D. And if you, if you try to grow that tissue within the gravity well of Earth, it just goes flat. But if you can do it in the microgravity of space, it grows in three dimensions and it, and it matches your own DNA perfectly. Um, that's, that's the transformational impact. But in microgravity, where tiny little particles like dust particles, they don't settle in microgravity. And so they don't disturb what, what you're manufacturing. So, so in microgravity, what ends up happening is you can create materials that are one or two atoms thick. So imagine taking a box that fits in the palm of your hand up to space. And in that box, um, all of the materials and the robotics are contained in that box to create a thousand artificial retinas, each of which are reimbursed um, you know, by, by Medicare to the tune of fifty to $75,000 a piece. All of a sudden, the business case closes to go and manufacture artificial retinas in space. It's truly fascinating. And you talk about it becoming a business case. Are businesses already latching onto this? Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. So what we're seeing now, we're seeing more private capital flowing into space than at any, any point ever by far. Um, and you've seen a lot, of, a lot of this SPAC activity where people are are raising capital in public markets and then going and, and, and buying and capitalizing in even bigger ways, a lot of these very um, innovative young companies. Um, and of course, we've seen some of that SPAC activity not work out so well. Some mm -hmm. has worked out well, but um, that has, that has you know, been a challenge here lately. But the important thing is, and I've been a long advocate for getting more and more private capital to flow into these markets because um, that's that's how we're going to stay ahead. Um, you know, we're never going to out centrally plan China. It's just not going to happen. But what we can do is we can out entrepreneur China. And that's that's really where America finds its strength. And then we've got to have our country, um, the, the government, uh, whether it's the Department of Defense or NASA or others, uh, need to figure out how to how to utilize and capitalize and even partner with these private companies to achieve astonishing outcomes, um, not just for the United States, but for all of humanity, um, and then democratize those capabilities for for everybody on the earth. Um, and and really, that's what America does better than any nation in the history of the world. Mm. I, I do want to get more into China and your thoughts on that. But the fact that you are now in the private sector, you are involved uh, with a PE firm, for example, Acorn Growth Companies, uh, as a senior advisor as well. How are you thinking about commercial space and just also these private sector opportunities where, where startups are concerned? Yeah, so it's something we're interested in. Um, you know, we think about, so Acorn Growth Companies is a private equity firm. It's a traditional private equity firm. We invest in businesses that have mature cash flows and mature earnings. A lot of what's happening in space right now is earlier stage than that, but a lot of it is now matured to the point where it is in fact investable by traditional private equity companies. And so we're looking at some of those opportunities, but we invest in aerospace in general um, and then defense, even apart from space or aerospace, um, and then also the intelligence community as well. So um, 
here's what I think is important to recognize. There, there are um, lots of opportunities now that there that didn't even exist even uh, you know five or ten years ago um, for traditional private equity. Uh, but but it should also be said that even when you think about traditional companies that might not be perceived as space companies, a lot of them touch space in one way or another. Hmm. Um, especially when you think about on the defense side of things or, you know, one of the companies we have is called TSS Solutions and, um, and they're largely a, a radar uh, maintenance, repair and upgrade capability. Uh, but, but they also do installations of large antennas for satellite communications. So um, the capabilities that are, you know, resident within aerospace and defense are often capable to 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 provide you know services for space in general. So um, it's certainly something we look at, and it's one of the reasons they brought me on board. So so to bring this back to where we started this conversation, which was the International Space Station and international partnerships, um, the partnership between the U.S. and and Russia. Uh, when you do look out and you you look at China. Um, the policy has been very different where civil space is concerned with the U.S. And China, of course, has its own space station now orbiting Earth, too. Do you think there's ever any sort of partnership that's struck there or it's just a very different relationship? It's a strategic competitor and the possibility of that is long over. So the, the, I think that there could be. I will tell you right now, NASA is prohibited by law from partnering with China on, mm -hmm. on a lot of things. Um, so, and that's done annually in, in an appropriations bill. It started with Frank Wolf, member of Congress from Virginia. Uh, the, you know, the story is he got hacked by, by China at one point. And so he put an amendment into a NASA, a NASA appropriation bill, making sure that NASA could not partner or that any, um, any dialogue that was had, had to, it had to be run through Congress first. Uh, so, um, I, I, it's just it's just a real challenge politically um, to do that now. I, I think that there there could be room for it. We also have to remember that their space station is is a is a department of it's it's, it's the you know the PLA operates a space station, the People's Liberation Army. It's 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 a military space station. Um, they call it the Chinese International Space Station. They're um, trying to get partners from around the world to join them on it. But we have to remember that that, that is a military capability. The United States has done something very different. We intentionally, back in 1958, we kept NASA separate from the Department of Defense. NASA, the NASA administrator reports directly to the president, not to the Secretary of Defense. Um, that was done intentionally because Eisenhower had a vision that NASA should be a tool of diplomacy for our country and not a tool of war. Mm. Um, make no mistake, I'm a huge advocate of the Space Force. We need to have a Space Force, but the Space Force is not going to be partnering with China. Um, yeah, it's, it's just not going to work that way. And and so, um, but but no, it's NASA is a. So we think about comprehensive national power in in the military where I come from. We talk about the dime theory of national power diplomatic power, information power, military power, economic power. NASA participates diploma diplomatically, 
We, we participate on the in information front. You know, when we landed Insight on Mars, when I was the NASA administrator, it was on the cover of every newspaper worldwide. Mm -hmm. People were getting great stories about the United States of America, which in a lot of countries, they don't often get those great stories. But, but when NASA does stunning things, um, it makes great news all the way, all around the world. Um, so that's information power. NASA is not a military. We don't do military. We do science, discovery, exploration. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then the E is, um, you know, economics. Um, NASA is a huge part of economic power. Think about how we're doing this interview right now. Um, I'm talking to you in a camera. Uh, you, you think about cell phone cameras. They were initiated, it was it was Nokia back in like 1998 that licensed a camera. It, Nokia licensed camera technology from NASA. It was camera technology developed for a Mars rover. Um, I didn't know and, that. Yeah, and that's kind of what initiated all of these these cameras. So, but but forget about that. The way we communicate, you know, direct TV, dish network. I come from Oklahoma, a lot of rural Oklahomans. If you don't have internet broadband from space, you don't have internet broadband. So the way we communicate, navigate, produce food, produce energy, do disaster relief, national defense, mm. um, predict weather, understand climate, all of these things heavily dependent on space. Um, none of them exist without NASA blazing the trail. Mm. So but you, you know, a lot of people don't realize, Morgan, how important... Think about this. The timing signal from GPS is necessary for terrestrial wireless networks. So if you don't have the timing signal from GPS, we, we're not communicating on cell phones. Um, if you don't have the timing signal from GPS, you can't regulate flows of electricity on the power grid. The power grid does not work. Um, there is no banking in the United States without the timing signal from GPS. Um, so the, all the timing for banking has to has to go through the timing signal from gps what i'm saying is that we as a civilization in the west the united states of america we are dependent on space if you lose banking there's no milk in the grocery store mm. um it's an existential threat to our country this is why countries like china and russia are launching anti-satellite missiles to take to take down our this is exactly where I was going with you with my next question. Yeah, sorry, I, I kind of <laughs> got up on my my high horse here, but you get my point. Um, space is now threatened because we are dependent on it as not just the United States but humanity. Um, and if they can bring us to our knees by destroying space, that's what they're building the capability to do. So what we have to do as a country is we have to make sure they understand. No matter how much they invest in destroying space, they will not get an advantage over the United States of America. So even, even before President Trump was talking about the Space Force, there was a bipartisan group of us in the House, and we were building something called the Space Corps, which in essence is exactly what the Space Force is. We called it the Space Corps, similar to the Marine Corps, because it reported to the Secretary of the Air Force, like the Marine Corps reports to the Secretary of the Navy which by the way is how the space force is designed as it is now. Mm -hmm. um, but in the house, when I was in the house of representatives, we passed a bill that got 344 bipartisan votes for the creation of the space Corps in the house. Um, that was a significant milestone in my view. Um, 
And then, and then of course, uh, President Trump became president and took it to a whole nother level. Um, but that's an important capability for our country. I will tell you, this is another area where President Biden has continued what President Trump started, both when we think about what's happening at NASA, but also at the Space Force. Um, all of this is important for the, the, our country. When you think about all of those elements of the dime theory of national power, diplomatic power, economic or information power, military power, economic power, um, all, all of this is important. And so um, I think it's a good thing that even in today's sometimes very divisive era, we are seeing bipartisan agreement on things that are necessary for America to stay, to stay strong. Mm. Um, and you really you did, you just touched on what I was going to get to with you, which is this whole idea of securing space, the fact that <clears throat> it is such critical infrastructure. And, you know, certainly I've had these conversations over the years with, you know, senior military and intelligence officials that, you know, heaven forbid the U.S. were ever to get into a direct conflict or war. You know, those 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 first shots, for lack of a better term, if you will, would likely be fired in space. Um, yeah. Space junk. Yeah, uh, the the anti-satellite tests, including the one we saw from Russia late last year, is the regulation or the rules of the road on the international stage keeping pace with the capabilities? Not even close. And this this should keep people up at night. Um, so first of all, when it comes to national security and defense, I think our country is doing the right things. We have the Space Force. We have the Space Development Agency. Um, we, we have U.S. Space Command has been reestablished, and that is a, it is, it is a, in fact, a geographic combatant command, just like European Command or Pacific Command. We now have U.S. Space Command. Um, so, so these are important things that have been established, and now we've seen bipartisan support, laws passed in a bipartisan way, the, the Biden administration continuing those programs. I think all there we are good and we're moving in the right direction. There's more to do, to be clear. But when it comes to all of the commercial activities in space, I, I just I want to I'll talk for a second here about. <clears throat> imagine the FCC. Here's what's happened. The, the Federal Communication Commission regulates basically who is allowed to launch what constellations into what orbital shells around Earth in low Earth orbit. The Federal Communica Communication Commission does that by default, <laughs> extracting, they extrapolate that from a law passed in the 1930s that allows them to regulate spectrum. And because satellites emit, you know, communication signals, um, and they regulate spectrum, they by default, they say, well, we also regulate, you know, orbital positions in orbit, low Earth orbit. So imagine a constellation that gets licensed by the FCC that has 15,000 satellites in one in, 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 in low Earth orbit. And, and, and they say in that regulation, they say that we expect one and a half percent of those 15,000 satellites to be derelict. What that means is that they can't maneuver and they can't deorbit. Um, well, you know, one and a half percent of 15,000 satellites is 225 satellites that are that we know are basically space debris. And we're talking about decently sized pieces of space debris, 225. We've never we've never licensed constellations before just knowing that we're creating debris. 
Well, the FCC said, well, the probability of an the aggregate collision risk of those 225 derelict satellites, again, can't maneuver, can't deorbit, the aggregate collision risk of those 225 satellites is one in 44. Basically, there's a one in 44 chance that those one of those satellites will get into a collision. Here's the problem with that. That seems like a low number. The problem is, if it happens, the impact of that is drastic. It's 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 horrible. It 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 it's something that we can't allow to have happen. Um, so we've got to think about this differently. And oh, by the way, they they considered only the 225 derelict satellites. They don't consider the 14,775 satellites that are maneuverable. Those also have a probability of collision. Uh, the FCC says that that probability is zero, which is incorrect, but but there is a significant probability of collision for those other satellites. And the other thing they don't consider is all of the lethal non-trackable debris that's already in space. You know, the only things we can track in space are things that are 10 centimeters and bigger. Anything smaller than 10 centimeters, we can't track, but it's every bit as dangerous as the objects that are 10 centimeters and bigger. And by the way, those objects that are 10 centimeters and smaller um, represent 10 to 100 times the amount of objects that are trackable. Ooh. So they don't consider that either. So I, what I don't want to do is scare people because we need these constellations. That we're, constellations are being launched right now that are going to transform humanity. We're talking about remote sensing, imagery, weather, climate, understanding the earth, um, national security, defense low latency, high throughput communications. These are going to be awesome, awesome capabilities. But we have to think about, we have to think of it like a cup. Like this is this is a cup, a coffee cup. I had coffee this morning. And, and there's a certain amount of space that has already been filled up with satellites. There's a certain amount of space that's filled up with debris. And then there's a certain amount of overhead that we have left to fill. And what we have to think about is how do we fill up the rest of the cup in a way where we're not diminishing, you know, somebody might have a whiz bang idea five years from now, but if, if, if low earth orbit is completely filled up, then how, how do we, how do we bring that into the market? So these are things, you know, when you think about the regulators, they're not thinking about these things in my view appropriately. The other thing we have to consider is that space does not belong to the United States of America as much as I would like it to. <laughs> it, it doesn't. Um, and so if it, let's say we fill up an orbital, an orbital shell around the Earth, is China going to say, well, you know, that's a really valuable orbital shell, but the United States is already there, so we'll go somewhere else. They're not going to do that. So there has to be an international way to where we can communicate on these issues, even in troubling times, um, so that we can preserve space for all of humanity. Because as it stands right now, if you game this out, I mean, it's a classic tragedy of the commons. Everybody is trying to race to get there because, mm. and, 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 and at the end of the day, it doesn't work out well for anybody. So, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. However, <clears throat> I think just to kind of wrap this up, I am curious, is there one, is there one aspect of the space economy, whether it's an emerging industry, whether it's a company or companies, capabilities or technologies that you're most excited about right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So two things. I know you said one thing. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> um, so I'm a big advocate. I've been a big ad. Like the the question fundamentally is, you want to if you want to deliver connectivity to more people on the planet than ever before, what you have to do is you have to drive the cost down per megabit per second. So the way you buy internet, you're buying speed. What you know, 25 megabits per second, 100 megabits per second. Well, how much are people paying for each megabit per second that they buy? That's the fundamental question. And I will tell you right now, there is a rush to go to low Earth orbit um, to, to have these massive constellations to deliver, you know, Internet broadband from space. I will tell you, if you want to drive down the cost per megabit per second, and I really believe this, geostationary orbit is still the place to do it. If you can launch a satellite that has one terabit per second of throughput, um, you can serve a lot of customers and give them a lot of capacity. Um, and that can happen from geostationary orbit. Now, people say, well, in geostationary orbit, you, you lose latency. So you might have a half a second or a one second delay or something like that, which is true. Where does that matter? It matters in video gaming. But if you're down... 95% of the traffic that goes through the internet is not video gaming. Um, it's, it's things that don't require latency. It's, it's email, it's downloading movies. It's the, you know, those kind of things. So I really believe that there is a, a, a long-term market for satellite communications from geostationary orbit, um, which is why I'm on, I, you know, I, I, I called Viazan when I, after I left NASA and I said, Hey, I really believe in what you guys are doing. I want to be a part of it. How can I help? Um, and they asked me to serve on their board. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be there. Um, I would also say it's important to remember um, that we have to think about if the International Space Station, which is delivering all of this capability to help us understand the value of microgravity, if that's important, we need to be thinking about today, how do we replace it with commercial space stations? Because let, let's pretend something goes awful and it doesn't last until 2030, which the Senate has said it wants it to do. But if it doesn't last until 2030, what are we doing right now to launch these commercial space stations so that ultimately China is not the only country with a space station in low Earth orbit capitalizing on all the work that we've done for the last 20 years? That's what should be bothersome to a lot of people. So Congress needs to step up and make sure that it is funding the replacement for the International Space Station, which should be public-private partnership. Want to be clear to members of Congress, public-private partnership when it comes to space exploration, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders calls it a bailout for billionaires. That's not what it is. It is, in fact, private capital. It is, not, and it's not just billionaires, but anybody who is an investor, it is private capital working with the U.S. government to build capability that otherwise the taxpayers would have to pay for. Um, so it, it's, not, it's not a bailout for billionaires. It is in fact, private capital helping the US government accomplish its mission, um, which is an entirely different uh, you know, kind, of, kind of thing. So we need to make sure that we are, we are funding uh, the replacement of the International Space Station. We need to make sure that private capital is contributing largely to that and that private capital Two things, you've got to have multiple providers that are competing on cost and innovation and safety. But each of those providers, they need to go get customers that are not NASA to drive down the cost to the American taxpayer. 
That's what separates the United States of America from every other country on the planet. We are really, really good at entrepreneurship. And we've got some really smart people that are figuring all of this stuff out. And the U.S. government needs to benefit from it. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.